Let us pray together. And dear Lord, we learn of your blessed Son by what you say of him and by what he says of himself. But in a strange way, we can also learn from what his enemies say of him. And such is today's revelation. And what a dear, vital, game-changing revelation this is. We're eager to learn the truth of Christ. Teach us today and transform us by what we learn. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I say, we're returning to a verse that I only lightly touched on last week. Verse 19. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look, a man who's a glutton and a wine guzzler, a friend of tax collectors and of sinners. What an accusation. Oh, that Jesus, friend of sinners. Yet this was their accusation, and on it we focus this week. I can see that maybe a a drive-by, one of the thousands of people who drive past our church uh, every day, stuck maybe in traffic, looks on our sign, sees that the sermon title is Friend of Sinners, and thinks immediately saying that, oh, finally, they're talking about my Jesus. They're talking about the Jesus I love and believe in, the friend of sinners Jesus, the Jesus who welcomes everybody, the Jesus who approves of everybody, the Jesus who enables everybody, who alike affirms straight and gay, trans, LGBTQLSMFT, the whole alphabet, uh, the one who welcomes earth worshipers and who welcomes anti-racist racists and who welcomes um, atheists and agnostics and apostates, that Jesus, the friend of sinners Jesus. Finally, I get to hear about the Jesus I like. Well, is that what this friend means, what this phrase means? I tell you, I've heard it used that way a great many times and to beat over the head people who still think that sins are sins and we're told we're not like Jesus. Jesus was friend of sinners. We're not like him. Well, What does this phrase mean? Does it mean that? If it doesn't mean that, then what does it mean? Is it true or is it false? Well, to begin understanding that, first let's look together at the background for the saying, Roman numeral 1, and for that, turn back to Matthew chapter 9. This is the setting in the Gospel of Matthew, where Matthew, the author of the Gospel, tells us about the best day in his life. That's the day that Jesus came into his life. The day that Jesus came to his workplace and told him to leave it. We see that in in verses 9 and following. You see, Jesus passed on from there, and he saw a man called Matthew, probably Matthew's uh, nickname. His actual name was Levi. man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. Well, you have to remember that tax collectors were just the the fringe of the fringe. Tax collectors were were turncoats. They were traitors. They were looked down on as sellouts to Rome. And they were, as as a a lot, dishonest people who built their fellow citizens uh, for profit. And so here's here's Matthew engaged in doing that. He hadn't just quit. He wasn't off work. He was at work doing this. And Jesus comes into his life and says, follow me. Well, what does he do? He rises and follows him. He leaves his job and follows Jesus. And so what does Matthew do? Well, he does the most natural thing in the world. He throws a party, a reception, so that all of his friends can meet Jesus. But of course, what kind of friends did he have? 
all the respectable people disowned him. All the good people, all the religious people, all the pious people wouldn't have anything to do with him. So what does that leave him with? Well, other tax collectors, you see, verse 10. He's at his house uh, with many tax collectors. We read many tax collectors and sinners, just in the category of people whose behavior put them beyond the pale of pious Judaism, sinners. Many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining, look at that, with Jesus and his disciples. So we should not envision that Jesus and his disciples had a separate table and then all the nasty people are over here. No, they're, they're all together. They're all dining together. They're all talking together. They're all being together. And, and what's worse, they're all being seen together. And there are two groups that see them that don't like what they see much. What groups were those? I remind you, first of all, the Pharisees look at him eating with those people. And uh, what do they say? Verse 11, they go up to his disciples and they say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus, Jesus does not trust the answer to them. Instead, he steps in and says himself, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came to call the righteous, not the righteous. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is a category completely out of their mind. But he says the reason why I came was for people like this. He gives them a homework assignment. We're going to find out in the chapters we're studying now. They didn't do their homework at all. They didn't study what, what, what he told them to. And so they didn't learn from it. And boy, oh boy, are the consequences for that. But for now, they're the first ones, and they say, why are you eating with those people? And then there's another group who have another question, and that question is, why are you eating at all? <laughs> Look at the next group, John's disciples. Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus basically says, because this is a wedding, and I'm the bridegroom. It's not a funeral. Why would they fast? So, there it is. He eats and he eats with the wrong people. Now come back to the verse we're looking at. Look, a man who is a glutton and a wine guzzler. Why? Because he eats normally. John the Baptist eats crunchy crickets and honey. But he eats what everybody else eats. And he drinks wine like everybody else drinks wine. And so to them, oh no, that's wrong. So just like we saw in chapter 9, and just like we saw in chapter 9, what do we read? A friend of tax collectors and of sinners. What he eats and who he eats with. That's the background here. Now let's look at the saying itself, Roman numeral 2, and come back to the question, reminding ourselves of the background. Now we ask ourselves, well, is it true? Is Jesus a friend of tax collectors and sinners? And first I want to say and say very clearly, Roman numeral 2, that the saying is not true. Roman numeral 2, the saying is not true. The saying is not true if one means that Jesus participates in their sin. If by saying he's friend of sinners, you mean he participates in their sin. That's letter A, participates in their sin. So is he a friend of sinners in that he sins with sinners? Is he a friend of sinners in that he's like the sinners? Is he a friend of sinners in that what they do he does so he can fit in with them? Well, I, I want to raise the general question first. Is there a risk in being friend to such people? 
Uh, think of people who are pursuing sin, who are pursuing vice, who are giving into it and embracing it. They're not repenting of it. They're not struggling with it. This is what they do. Is there danger in being friends with people like that? Well, for us, yeah, there's great danger in being friends with people like that. Scripture warns us about that a number of times. Proverbs 13.20, what does Proverbs 13.20 say? He who walks with wise men will be wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. Proverbs 13.20. How about 1 Corinthians 15.33? Paul says very pointedly, bad company corrupts good morals. 1 Corinthians 15.33. So is there danger in befriending somebody who's living this way? Well, for us, yes, indeed, there's great danger. For Jesus, no, not really. Why is it a danger for us? Well, because we might be tempted to compromise, to be accepted, to be liked, to fit in. One compromise at a time. Little one, little one, little one, little one. And before you know it, we're indistinguishable. We're a friend of sinners because we are sinners like them. For Jesus, there was no such danger. Look at Hebrews chapter 2 with me. Hebrews chapter 2. Look at verses 17 and 18. Wonderful truths. Therefore, he had, this is Jesus, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So he is not a great imitation of a human being, the Word indeed became flesh. He became a real, live, completely human, human being. As to his humanity, it is perfect humanity as his deity is perfect deity. So he was not a pretend person, he was a real person, and he went through temptations. But for him, while there was temptation from without, there was no answering temptation from within. There was no purchase for this temptation. Look at that nice phrase that begins verse 17. Made like his brothers in every respect. Well, now the writer takes that up again in chapter 4, verse uh, 15. He says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who in every respect, there's the same phrase, in every respect, kata panta, has been tempted as we are, and then he, he gives one exception, yet without sin. So, like us in every way, tempted in every way, but in his case, without sin. And there is the difference between him and us. The likeness is complete, except for that one point. He does not sin. So look at chapter 7 and verse 26. Hebrews seven twenty-six. For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Now obviously by separated from sinners he doesn't mean he wasn't with them because he was. He means he wasn't of them. You see the distinction? He was with them. He was not of them. He was tempted but he did not sin. So for us is there danger in a friendship with somebody who's pursuing sin? Yes, there's always a danger. For Jesus was there a danger? No, there is no danger. 
There is no danger for him. He would not be made impure by their impurity. So, was he a friend of sinners then by sinning like them? Was that how he was their friend? Did, did he become a, a sinner so that he could fit in with the sinners? Maybe become a sinner so that he could reach the sinners? Nobody'd reason that way, would he? Oh, but we know people do. If you've been a Christian for any time, you know there have been famous leaders who have done exactly that. There have been pastors who've brought foul language and foul thoughts and foul concepts into their pulpit because that's the way to reach people, to become like them. It's always this thought in in a branch of uh, evangelicalism that the way to reach the world is what? Become like the world. To which the world says, why do we need you? We're already doing world and we're doing it better. So why would we need you? Uh, Why do we need second-rate entertainment when we've got the best entertainment, if that's what you're offering? But anyway, I digress just a little bit. Yes, we've had leaders who advocate this. Was Jesus such a leader? Well, in this case, no hardly seemed like a strong enough word. (laughs) There should be a stronger word than no. No way, absolutely not. Flat-out categorical no. This was not his way. Not by word, not by example, not by inference. He did not participate in their sin. That's not how he was a friend of sinners. Uh, The proof is, who would be most eager to find sin in Jesus? Why, Satan would. He'd either put it there or find it there if he could. But what does Jesus say in the Gospel of John? He says, the prince of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. Nothing to grab a hold of. And uh, if not Satan, who else would have liked to have found sin in Jesus? The Pharisees. And what did they have to do in order to condemn him? They had to lie about him and they had to hire, pay false witnesses. Because they couldn't find actual sin in actual Jesus. So, no, there was no... But I I need to make this point even more strongly because we need to understand this. 1 John 3.8, just listen, I'll read it to you first and note it down. 1 John 3.8, listen... The one who does sin is of the devil, because the devil sins from the beginning. Listen, the Son of God was manifested for this purpose. What purpose? To destroy the works of the devil. Now, if he came to earth to destroy the works of the devil, and if the one who sins does the works of the devil, is Jesus going to sin so that he can reach those people? Is he going to do the works he came to destroy? No, but you hear many people, that is exactly what this good friend of sinners, Jesus, is about. He doesn't want to make people feel, gay, uh, feel bad about being uh, gay or whatever. He doesn't want to make anybody feel bad. He just wants to make everybody feel loved and accepted just as we are. But that's not this Jesus. He came to destroy the works of the devil. Spurgeon very well says, big surprise, but he says, he says very well, Christ aimed at winning their souls, not at winning their applause. So he didn't do what they did to fit in with them. That was not his method. He was not a friend of sinners, if by that you mean he participated in their sins. A second way in which this saying is not true, Jesus was not a friend of sinners, if by that you mean that he encourages or enables their sin, letter B, obviously, that he encourages or enables their sin. And of course, part of our problem is that we've lost sight of what a friend really is. 
Well, what is a friend? What is it to be a real friend to somebody? So we know basic truths like Romans 6.23. What does that say? The wages of sin is death. Now there's a, there's a way of saying that nothing good comes from sin. Can I get an amen? Nothing good comes from sin. Sin is never the direct way to something good. And Galatians 6, 7 adds, do not be deceived. What? God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this will he also reap. So if we have a friend who's being tempted to sin, has an impulse to sin, is being drawn to sin, or is involved in sin, is it the role of a friend to make him feel better about that? To urge him to follow his heart, to believe his gut, to realize his full potential and be who he really is because we will accept him and approve of him and enable him no matter what he chooses. Is that what a friend does? Remembering that what we're doing is encouraging him to pursue death. Remembering that what we would be doing is encouraging him to mock God and surely reap misery and regret from it? Is that being a friend? Can I get Oh, thank you. Scripture says very clearly, but I don't know if we plug these verses in, let's, Proverbs 26, 28 says, a lying tongue hates its victims, and a flattering tongue, a flattering mouth works ruin. Proverbs 26, 28, a lying tongue hates its victims. Well, if we tell someone, if that's what you feel like doing, do it, if we tell someone, well, if you want to tell your husband that, tell him that, even if it's sinful. You want to do this to your wife, do that, even though it's sinful. Your children, your parents, whatever. If we do that, are we doing it because we love that person? Well, not according to this verse. This verse says, a lying tongue hates its victims. What are we doing? Well, we're lying. If we say, yes, that's the way to happiness and peace, we're lying, aren't we? Do we love someone we're lying to? No, we do not. It hates its victims. And a flattering mouth works ruin. Let me camp out on that with the next verse, Proverbs 29, 5. A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. You, you pat someone's fat little head and that person you are heading towards a disaster. And so when you flatter a person and say that his sin isn't sin, that his disastrous choice isn't a disastrous choice, are you being a loving friend? You are not. You're flattering him. And you're spreading a net for his feet. And he will be snared and he will fall because God is not mocked. So encouraging someone to ruin or destroy himself, that's not love. And that's not being a friend. A friend would never encourage his friend to take God lightly or to take sin lightly or to ignore either. A friend would never encourage a friend to go with his gut or follow his heart unchecked by Scripture. A friend would never tell a friend to go down a, a path that God says leads to ruin. And that's, uh, those are things that a friend would never do. A friend would never put happiness before holiness or peace before purity or satisfaction before sanctification. A real friend would never do that. And so Jesus would never do that. So no, Jesus did not encourage or enable. He wasn't that kind of a friend to sinners. Well, is there any sense then in which it's true that Jesus is a friend to sinners? Oh, yes. Oh, yes, there is. There's a glorious sense in which he's the best friend to sinners. Roman numeral three, the saying is gloriously true if one means true things by it. And I think, I think Jesus enjoyed catching up this accusation and making it his own. 
I think that it didn't. I think it bothered him not one bit that they called him a friend of sinners, uh, except about their deception. It is gloriously true if one means that Jesus, Roman numeral A, loved sinners. Well, of course he loved sinners. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came into the world to save sinners. He came into the world, he says, to call the unrighteous and to help those who are sick. So yes, he loved sinners. And in that way, yeah, he was a, not only a friend to sinners, but the very best friend to sinners. And I, I single out two specific sub-senses. He loved sinners, first of all, to the uttermost. Turn to John 15, 13. He loved sinners to the uttermost. John 15, 13. Uh, you will recognize that's in the upper room discourse. John 15, 13. Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So he holds it out as the greatest degree of love to give your life for, uh, he says specifically, your friends. Not just everybody, not just anybody, but his, his friends. And of course, Jesus has a specific group in mind when he says that. He, he says in the next verse, what marks this group? What marks the people he gave his life for is that they come to do what he commands. That's the outworking of his giving his life for them. But he gives his life, he lays down his life for his friends. That's the greatest degree of love. Well, is Jesus about to lay down his life for his friends? Well, yes, that's, that's the theme of, well, that's the theme of the gospel. That's certainly the theme of the upper room discourse, the impending reality. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, he said in verse 10. Here he says, uh, the greatest degree of love is to lay down uh, your life for your friends. Now, don't lose sight of this. If, if Jesus did the greatest thing, then how much more will he do everything lesser than that? If Jesus has given his life to win our life, then how much more can we look to him to do all the other things we need that are lesser acts than him giving his life? So, is he a friend of sinners? Oh yes, he loves sinners. First of all, he loves them to the uttermost. But I find great comfort in the fact also that he loves sinners he loved sinners at our worst. To Turn to Romans chapter 5. Familiar verses to many of you, but perhaps I can open up an aspect that you've not noticed here before. Familiar and wonderful verses at any level. We're going to look at verses 6, 8, and 10, but I want to start with 10 for a very specific reason. Uh, I ask God to help me make clear to you. Verse 10, Paul says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Now I think it's the most respect to God and to the apostle of God, the mouth of Christ, that we take Paul's words at their, at their full value. What did Jesus do? Well, he did something while we were enemies. Not after we stopped being enemies. He did it while we were enemies. What did he do? He reconciled us by his death. Verse 10 doesn't say we were reconciled to God by something we did. It certainly doesn't say that Jesus made it possible for us to be reconciled to God. Or he made us reconcilable, whatever that would exactly mean. By his death, he reconciled us. By his death, what does reconcile mean? 
by his death, he brought us from being enemies to being friends, to being sons and servants. He did this by his death. So all of our response is something caused by his, his, his death for us, not something that provokes his love for us. He didn't look to us and see that we'd eventually become worthwhile or that we'd believe in him or repent and then say, okay, well, if you're going to do that thing, then I'll do this for you. When he did what he did, what were we? What does the verse say? What were we when he did this? We were enemies. So he did it for us as enemies. But you say, we're not enemies anymore. We're friends. Amen. How did that happen? Paul says by his death. Jesus did it. Who gets the glory for this? Jesus. Now let me show you even more about this. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. So back up now to verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. All the good we have as Christians is a result of the work of Jesus Christ. Everything we have, we have as a gift. Paul says, uh, what do you have that you haven't received? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you hadn't received it? So, that being the case, while I was a sinner, he died for me. He died for me not because of any promise of anything good from me, but solely because of what was good in him. And I was a sinner. You don't get worse than being a sinner. A rebel against God's person, a rebel against God's will. And now back up one more time to verse 6. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. So keep in mind that by this death, he actually made us friends with God. But when he died for us, we were not friends with God. We were, what does Paul say? Weak. We had no strength and no ability, total inability to respond savingly to God. He says we were ungodly. As he says in chapter 3, no fear of God before their eyes. We were sinners, verse 8 says, and the wages of sin is death. And verse 10, we were enemies. And yet, as such, Jesus gave the highest degree of love, of an act of friendship, for us. The thing he says, than which you can do no more, greater love has no man than this. He did that for us as enemies, weak, sinners, and irreverent. So I say that he loved us, he loved sinners, he loved us to the uttermost, and he loves us at our worst. This is just what, he see, what we see here, at our worst. Now, I really want to stress that for a great many reasons, because I know many Christians think, oh, I know I was a, I was a sinner before I became a Christian, and I know that Jesus died for my sins, and then he saved me, but... And, and I accept that, but I've done so many things since then. I've done so many wretched things. I've done so many stupid things. So many things I regret since then. I don't know if he can still love me. I, I don't know how he can love me, given that. I mean, I didn't know then, like, that makes sin okay. I didn't know then, but I know now. So, so I don't see how he can still love me. But you need to understand that Jesus' death was for bad people. <laughs> it was only for bad people. It was only for people who were enemies, without ability, sinners, irreverent. And that's, that is when he gave his love for us, and that is when he befriended us to God. So if he loved us at our worst, then he will always love us. One of the great and precious truths to keep in mind is that when Jesus died for his people, when he died for his friends, when he died for the sheep, when he gave his life for the church, when he did this, all of our sins were future 
And so all the sins he died for were all the sins we'd ever commit. What use would it be to make atonement for sins we committed until we were converted and then the rest send us back to hell? Why would he even do that? No, when he dies, they're all future and he dies for all our sins. The thing we need to understand, well, let me put it a weak way and then let me put it a stronger way. Jesus, know, Jesus died for us and befriended us to God knowing the worst about us. Knowing the very worst about us. And what's more, he knew worse against us than we know against ourselves. Because of the appalling power of human beings to rationalize sin. There are things we don't even know we should be ashamed about. Amen? You know yourself that well? There are things we don't even know we should regret. But he knows them. And yet he commended his love for us by dying for us in full knowledge of that. Now let me ask you to reflect. How many friends would you have if your friends all knew everything about you? If they knew every foul thought that had ever crossed your mind, every horrible thing you'd ever done or thought about doing or would have done if you had the opportunity, every miserable, small or large act, every word, how many friends would you have I'd say probably none. (laughs) Nobody knows everything about us, right? Well, one person knows everything about us. And that's the one who showed the greatest degree of love by giving his life for us, and by that, reconciling us to God. Now, do you think that's a, a friend worth having? Can you even imagine having a better friend than that? made the greatest act of sacrifice that is exactly what we needed, which nobody else could have done even if he wanted to, but he did that. And in so doing, committed himself to us and us to him. So, yes, indeed, you can say Jesus is the friend of sinners if by that you mean that he loves sinners to the uttermost and at our worst. Amen, he's a friend of sinners. And letter B... It's also true in the sense that he loves us at all times. Proverbs 17, 17 is my next verse. Short but sweet. Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. I'm recording that to a girl once, and she said, boy, why is that so true? Well, she meant by that she thought that her brother gave her a lot of adversity. So that may have been true, but that's not what this verse means. (laughs) What it means is brothers are not fair-weather brothers. They don't leave when things get tough. A friend is there when things are tough. Loves at all times. And when things get tough, well, that's just what friends are for. That's exactly what they're for. But there is nobody of whom that is as true as it is of Jesus because nobody knows the worst about us like Jesus. The the worst of times is, is always given remaining sin in our flesh. But he never leaves us. He loves at all times. And he's born for adversity. Now this this verse is about human friends. And if there are friends of whom it is true to some degree, and thank God there are, right? You've had loyal friends. I hope you've been a loyal friend. I hope you are a loyal friend. This is a great thing to have. But it's not true of anybody like it is of Jesus. Jesus is this to the perfection degree. So he loves us at our worst, and he uh, loves us at all times. And let her see, he sticks closer than a brother. 
and that's Proverbs 18.24. A very difficult verse to translate, but I won't linger there on that question with you. Proverbs 18.24. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And I think the point of the Proverbs is, it's not just great to have many friends, because you can have too many friends. Or you can have friends of the wrong kind, and it can end up ruining you if you're indebted in too many ways or compromised in too many ways. I mean, there's ways that can go wrong. Better to have one friend who sticks closer than a brother than to have a lot of friends who may bring you to ruin, you see? So I, I'm not saying that this verse is a prophecy of Jesus, but I am saying that it's, it's true of Jesus like it's true of nobody else. That if you have to come down to just one friend... If, there's only, if you're only allowed one friend, my counsel would be, make it Jesus. Now, this is not just a theoretical thing, isn't it? I would imagine if I asked for a show of hands, some hands would go up. If I were to ask, have any of you lost friends because of Jesus? I think some hands might come up. Do you regret the loss? I would hope that every person would say, in no way, never. No. If I've got to choose between any friend and Jesus, well, I choose Jesus because he sticks closer than a brother, and I'm never going to leave him. I couldn't leave him. Why would I leave him? He sticks closer than a brother. So I want to put those together just at a pause here, letters A, B, and C. He loves us to the uttermost and at our worst. He loves us at all times. He sticks closer than a brother. In case I haven't made this point to you well, let me try it from another angle. I think it was Chuck Swindoll I heard say, at one point, the, the definition of a best friend, what's the definition of a best friend? Definition of a, of a best friend is somebody who knows enough about you to ruin you, but doesn't. That's the definition of a best friend. He knows enough about you to ruin you, but doesn't. Well, let's say that Jesus is someone who knows, about, who knows enough about us to damn us to hell for all eternity, and yet saves us, keeps us, will resurrect us and glorify us. Now, is that a best friend? That's a best, I can't imagine having a better friend. I can't imagine having a better friend. You can never surprise him, Christian. If you've believed in him, there will never come a day. There can never come a day because he's God. When Jesus says, you know, when I saved you, I had no idea you were capable of that. But there's nothing he doesn't know. And when he died, remember, this is, the, this is the quality of infinity. This is the quality of an infinite mind. That Jesus could die for each of those for whom he died as if that was the only person. And knowing everything about that person. Now, I can't do one and a half things at the same time. But Jesus is God incarnate. And in the saving plan of God, yeah, everything was taken in in Jesus, in Jesus' act of atonement. So, letter D Yes, you can say he's a friend of sinners, if by that you mean he tells us hard truth. Well, we've seen that, that a person who flatters and lies hates. But what about Jesus? Jesus tells us hard truth. Revelation 3.19 seems to be a verse that is not in some people's Bibles, and yet there it is. Revelation 3.19, Jesus says, Those whom I love, I flatter, enable, and accept without condition. You have a Bible that says that, you ought to sell it. Well, you ought to burn it, actually. You don't want anyone else reading it. No, the, what the text says is, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So, be zealous and repent. 
It is of his love that he reproves us. It is of his love that he disciplines us. And when your backside is stinging because you've tasted of God's discipline, you thank God because it means he loves you. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So repent. Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Now he wounds us, but he wounds us in faithfulness. His wounds are needed wounds. They're the wounds of a friend. They're the wounds of love. They're the wounds of infinite wisdom. He is a friend who tells us hard truth. And finally, he is a friend who loves us forever. John 13, 1. At the uh, Last Supper, John 13, 1 says, Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end, as most translations say. Now, the, the Greek phrase, astelos, is ambiguous, and, and John likes ambiguity. He often says things by which he means two things. So he means that, that Jesus loved them to the end of his life, but then when you think of it, is there ever an end to his life? <laughs> yes, humanly he dies, but then he resurrects. He's resurrected and lives forever. And to say that Jesus loves his own who are in the world, again, a, a very specific phrase as is characteristic uh, of uh, Scripture in general and John in particular, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them forever to the uttermost to the end. That's Jesus' kind of love. Now, I'm sure that all of us have known loves that were good for a while. Friends we had for a week, a month, a year, a decade. But it came to an end. Maybe the person died, maybe the person moved, maybe the person changed and betrayed us, maybe in some cruel, hurtful way of which we still bear the pain and the wounds. But this will never happen with Jesus. He loves his own to the uttermost, to the end, with no end. Because his love is an endless love because he is an endless person. And so this is his love. It is the only love we can absolutely count on forever. So many have had people pledge love to the end of their life. And they're still alive, but they're not still loving. That's human. That's human promises. But this is Jesus' promise. He loves us forever. Now, is that a friend worth having? Absolutely. None can make this promise uh, without exaggerating, uh, as John can, speaking of Jesus. So, in all these ways and more, Jesus is indeed a friend to sinners. He's the best friend a sinner could have. So sometimes I have a longer uh, introduction than usual. This time I'm going to have a longer conclusion than usual. And I want to reflect on the things we looked at. And uh, the first thing I want to ask is, what does it say about that generation that this is their idea of a criticism? What does it say about them that, that to them this is something really bad to say about Jesus? Look at him, friend of sinners. And that's a bad thing. Well, for one thing, what it says about them is they have absolutely no self-knowledge whatsoever, right? Because if they knew who they were and who Jesus was, that he would be the friend of sinners would be the best news they'd ever heard. Because if he'd be a friend of sinners, maybe he'll be a, my friend. Maybe I can be his friend because I'm a sinner. But you see, that's the thing. That's what this statement shows. It shows that they didn't see themselves as sinners. And so they certainly don't need that kind of a friend because they're not like 
those people, they're righteous, they're pious, they do the right things, they're okay. They don't need a friend to sinners because they're not. So it shows us they know nothing about God, themselves. It shows us they know nothing about God because they have worked a system where they're able to bring God down to a point at which they can please him by their works. They, they've, they've worked the law to the point where they're able to meet God's standards. That's why Jesus has to say in the Sermon on the Mount, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of God. They had that kind of a righteousness, so they didn't feel themselves to be sinners. For somebody to say, look at him, he's a friend of sinners, and make that a criticism, well, then you don't. And, and I, I find that to be true in and out of the church, that anyone who, who, who lowers what Jesus does to save sinners and raises what man does to help Jesus out, this person has more self-confidence than he ought to and less reverence for God than he ought to. Any way we put ourselves in that process and say Jesus isn't able to take us to heaven without our help, well, then we've got we to have a pretty high opinion of ourselves, don't we? To think that we can put something into that process, which Scripture says leaves us absolutely nothing to boast about, but here we do bring the one thing that is why I go to heaven and Bob over here doesn't. So I find that shows a degree of self-confidence and a lowered view of God that doesn't fit reality. Now it's, it's a poor thing to have this as a criticism of Jesus. Now let me ask the Christians here, do you have another friend like this? You have no other friend like this. Neither do I. A friend who knows the worst about you, who knows worse than you know about yourself and still will love you forever. Do you have a friend like that? We don't have a friend like that. Who not only loves, but keeps, saves, sanctifies, protects, will glorify and resurrect. Do you have a friend like that? Just, just the one. Just the one who is close to us in all our heartaches, who feels all our sorrows and our miseries, who is able to suffer with us and isn't cowed by anything we go in. Sometimes our, our grief may repel a weak human being, but it never does Jesus. It never does Jesus. If anything, he draws close in those times, Scripture says. So what should we do faced with a friend like this? Well, we should prize that friendship above all others. We should cherish that friendship and value it, and we should cultivate it. Draw closer and closer. Seek out this friend. Know him as well as we can. Give our lives for him. Serve him, glorify him, and tell others about him that they might have him for a friend as well. That's what we should do. Non-Christian, I would say, what should you do? How should you respond to this news? Well, you should respond like the people of Jesus' day. We read about them in Luke chapter 15, where we read, Then, do, then drew near unto him all the tax collectors and sinners for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. Well, you know, if you drew near to hear Jesus, you'd find he receives sinners still. If you drew near to hear him, and hearing believed him, and believing cast yourself on his mercy, called on him to be your Lord and Savior, you would find he still receives sinners and eats with them. No matter how bad you are, or how bad off you are, or how far away you are, you may still come. But do come. Do come. This 
is the friend we need. Amen? Amen. Jesus, friend of sinners. Let's take a moment to reflect on this, make any final notes or action items you've got, and then I'll close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for this glorious revelation of the truth of Jesus Christ, friend of sinners. And we who know him thank you that the only reason we can call him our Lord and our friend is because he reconciled us to you by his death. That he came not to try to save sinners, but to save sinners. And we are happy and joyous to give all praise and glory to him for doing it, to you for planning it, to the Holy Spirit of God for applying it. Thank you for your great salvation and that wonderful commitment of love. We pray for all who have not yet known that, that you will open those blind eyes and those deaf ears, lead them to see how much they need such a Savior and what a glorious Savior Jesus is, and seeing cause them to come. In Jesus' name, amen.